0: from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats.
1: And that's, yeah, we're not shooting for perfection. We're shooting for richness of experience.
0: This week on the show, we visit with Phyllis Boyd of Groundwork Indy. She gives us a tour of their on-site garden tended by teams of young people in their youth development program. And she shares other community projects in the Northwest area of Indianapolis. Plus a story from Harvest Public Media about a beekeeping program in a prison. All that and more coming up on Earth Eats, so stay with us. Let's start with a food and farming report from Renee Reed. Hi,
2: Renee. Hi, Kate. A fungus that attacks vegetables has shown up early this year in Illinois. Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports that could threaten the availability of pie at Thanksgiving.
3: Phytophthora blight is a vine infection that can damage vegetables, including peppers, squash, and pumpkins. Mohamed Babadoust is a professor of plant pathology at the University of Illinois. He says the blight usually shows up in late August or early September, but heavy rains led to its appearance in early July this year. He says it's a real threat to Illinois that provides more than 90 percent of the canned pumpkin in the U.S. If we do not have enough
4: processing pumpkin, we may not have enough canned pumpkin,
3: let's say, for Thanksgiving, for the pie pumpkin. Babadu says the damage can be mitigated if growers are on the lookout for it and apply fungicides. Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media.
2: President Joe Biden issued an executive order that aims to increase competition in the meat market. Biden is directing the U.S. Department of Agriculture to create rules to strengthen the Packers and Stockyards Act. That law was made in 1921 to ensure fair competition in the meat market. Tim Gibbons, a spokesperson at the Missouri Rural Crisis Center, says the changes are long awaited by farmers and ranchers.
3: Competition in agriculture is necessary in order for family farmers to get paid not only cost of production, but a living wage on top of that. That is is integral to the economies of our rural communities and our, and our state and our country as a whole.
2: Biden also directed the USDA to make rules that define when meat can use product of the USA labels and make it easier for farmers to fix their equipment. Thanks to Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine and Jonathan All for those reports. For Earth Eats, I'm Renee Reed.
0: Many people in prison learn trades like cooking or landscaping. It helps them prepare for life after they're released. As Harvest Public Media's Katie Pikus reports, some prisons are doing something different. They're training inmates to work with bees.
4: Clarinda Correctional Facility in southwest Iowa has three large gardens. Daryl's an inmate here, and he pulls something out to harvest.
2: (laughs) Wow, look at that. Never in life would I ever think that. I only thought carrots would be yellow <laughs> and orange.
4: Darryl's seeing a black carrot for the very first time. The prison only lets first names be used. Daryl and about a dozen other inmates at the medium security prison are enrolled in an apprenticeship teaching inmates gardening, landscaping, and conservation. The real attraction, though, is beekeeping. Daryl, Jacob, and Clinton are dressed head to toe in baggy white protective suits with mesh beekeeper's hats to protect their faces from a half million bees.
2: Want to start with this hive? Yeah.
3: Okay. Try try to find the queen? Uh, Yeah, we can.
4: They're not harvesting honey. They're just checking on the bees. They pump smoke into the air to calm them.
2: So we just kind of smoke them down a little bit to kind of get them off the frame.
4: They're lifting frames out of a white beehive, kind of like pulling files out of a filing cabinet.
3: This, well, I'll just get it over there. Whoa, heavy.
4: They're looking for the queen bee to make sure she's healthy, but on some of the honeycomb-filled frames, they see the tasty reward they work for.
3: There you go. That's all honey 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 right there. That's shiny as nectar.
4: They'll likely harvest the honey in August. The prison brands it as Bee Haven Honey. It'll keep some of the honey and give some away to local food pantries. Correctional Officer Gerald Nelson teaches beekeeping at Clarinda. He says a lot of guys are nervous to get near the bees when they first start, but they learn how to be calm and how to work together.
3: One of the first things I did when we first started is take the guys down. Okay, now reach down and grab a bee and pick it up and not hurt it.
4: Clarinda got its first bees in 2018. And it's one of the more popular programs. It's also popular in other places. Prisons in Missouri and Washington also offer beekeeping programs. Besides learning a new trade, inmates take away some psychological benefits. Responsibility, accountability, and problem solving.
3: There's a number of them that we've had leave here. And when they earn my respect, they've done a real good job.
4: One of those people is Newt Wright. He was in prison when the beekeeping program got started. Now he has a hive at his family farm about an hour northwest of Clarinda. He had two hives, but one didn't make it through the winter.
1: And I had to get a new queen put in here. But this hive's doing pretty good still.
4: The prison mailed him a beekeeping suit after he was released. That's something they offer for others enrolled in the program. Wright says beekeeping is like having 50,000 pets to care for.
1: And these little guys, like, count on me to make sure that I keep them healthy. And uh, if they have mites or something, I need to get them treated with some medicine.
4: Wright says beekeeping taught him how to work well with others. And there's research that prison animal programs help reduce fights, antisocial behaviors, and the chances of coming back to prison. That's something Philip Tedeschi has studied. He's a clinical professor at University of Denver's Graduate School of Social Work. He says animal programs put a person's empathy to work.
3: And empathy is also closely connected to the commission of crime, particularly violent crime, is that when somebody has stronger capacity for empathy, they're less likely to engage in harmful behaviors towards others.
4: Tedeschi's primarily studied programs where inmates work and live with dogs, but he says there's a parallel to bees. In both, inmates learn to care for animals, And that can change their experience in prison and life for the better. Katie Peikus, Harvest Public Media.
0: Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. Coming up, we visit the Gardens of Groundwork Indy to learn about their youth work program and to talk with Director Phyllis Boyd about the role of visioning, designing, and creating for engaging young people in gardening and in community building. That's after a short break. Stay with us. Kate Young here, this is Earth Eats. I've just crossed an expansive boulevard, Birdsall Parkway in Indianapolis, and pulled into a parking lot between two greenhouses and a small stone studded mid-century style office building. I spot some tall sunflowers not quite in bloom and feathery garden beds on the other side of the building. I'm meeting with Phyllis Boyd. She is the executive director of Groundwork Indy. They're a nonprofit organization, one of 20 independent trusts nationwide that are connected to a national Groundwork USA network. Groundwork Indy is tasked with addressing the needs of their community as outlined in a quality of life plan that the Northwest area developed prior to 2015.
1: It's the Northwest area of Indy, which is now called the Near Northwest area. It's been rebranded, but it's basically that beige area on that map. It's about six square miles. You can see we've got multiple parks, including the Riverside Regional Park, that large green linear rectangle there. That's actually larger than Central Park. And we've got three waterways that converge in the area. So there's a lot going on. So our task is really to support the action items that the Arts and Parks and Public Space Action Team no. develop yeah, as a part of the quality of life plan. And so those items we add to each year, each month, depending on what happens, but we do have some set things that we try to do. We have two youth employment programs. The first is our high schooler green team program, ages 14 to 18 for youth enrolled in high school. And then we have a program called Ground Corps for out of school youth. And they are anywhere from 16 to 24. And probably if they're on that younger, in that range, they've dropped out of school. And so we work with them to get enrolled in programs to get their diplomas. Because we all know that if you don't have a high school diploma, it's really hard to make a living.
0: Groundwork Indy also works to connect the participants to wraparound services. They assist with future job placement, but also if someone is facing housing challenges or transportation challenges, they address those issues as well to make sure they can get to work, and those barriers are minimized. The Groundwork office building has an open floor plan with a small kitchen area in front that's always stocked with snacks. Phyllis said they've almost outgrown the building. The garden begins just outside the back door. Here's
1: the garden that is um, ours that we manage. We also work in other garden spaces with other community gardens, other nonprofit partners, and support their work. Some folks, places we visit once a week, some places just once a month, and other places it might just be uh, at the beginning of the season or the end of the season to do you know, the prep or the, the winter wind-down. Mostly it's community gardens, and that's what this is too. It's community. This garden is community access. You know, your typical community garden, you have people that have plots that they come and work at. We support those as well. But this garden here is managed by our youth, and that's Ian Oler over there. He's our garden manager, also our, our bike coordinator. <laughs> You'll see that. But this garden really is open to anyone to come into and to pick whatever they need whenever they need it. Okay. Yeah. It's really beautiful. This garden is extraordinary. It's initially with our first bed of peas and then now you see it's um, the peas have finished up and the corn is taking over and we've got beans in there. Um, it's, it's sort of a three sisters, two-thirds three sisters, <laughs> and then around, around the bend here there's a there's a bed that's actually got the corn and the beans and the squash companion planted together it's a gorgeous space wow so it started out when we started in 2015 we didn't have a garden here it was just lawn from here to the canal and our first summer program in 2016 we had 10 green teamers and they really wanted to have a garden so we installed two beds on either side of this exit here from the office and every year they've made it larger and larger and last year Ian had the brilliant idea of merging all the beds into one serpentine bed so this was this used to be discrete rectangles and now they're all together that's an
0: interesting modification because you were
1: able to keep the original beds but just make something more flowing just, just to connect them to get more area in in garden And then to really think about this idea of interplanting and diversity in the garden. So we've got flowers here. We've got vegetables here. Um, Try to keep the water off the leaves, Dre, down on the ground. Um, And it's great for pollinators. Yeah, I think it's just really beautiful.
0: We walked over to a garden bed being tended by Ian, the garden manager, and one of the green team members, Cal.
1: Hey Kel, what are
3: you working on? Uh, I'm just cutting these. What are you cutting? So, uh, um, so this won't connect, like, on this vine, so it's loose, so I'm just cutting this right here. So I can separate it.
1: Right.
3: These are our
2: former former pea trellises.
1: Oh, I see. So, yeah, constant change in the garden, for sure.
0: Or we have to. Phyllis and I continued on our garden tour. Yeah,
1: get- so there's a squash in here, some greens, and I love all these
0: narrow pathways with stone and wood and logs and stuff. It's really pretty.
1: So, this was, so Ian has been studying permaculture and just forest agroecology and is sort of bringing those principles in here about how you really take care of the soil and to build the ecology in the soil and the soil health and that is really reliant on having a good substrate for mycorrhizal fungi and that's where the logs come in. But it also helps, you can see that the land sort of falls down a little bit, it creates these terraces where we're holding water a little bit better in the beds. Sometimes what we're doing is when we're watering by hand we have a a rain barrel back there and you see they've gotten a cart and five gallon buckets they've gotten water from the rain barrel. Sometimes we'll just take a whole bucket and just pour it onto like one of those logs and let it just sort of seep in slowly. That is really nice, I've never
0: heard of that. It's beautiful, I mean, you've got lettuce in the middle of summer, that's impressive. I see all this inner planting, so there's peppers, there's lettuce, there's watermelon, some flowers, calendula, I see some amaranth maybe
1: collected some of the calendula flowers like a couple weeks ago when they've dried and we're going to be using them to make a salve with some of the plantain that's growing in the garden as well. It's great. Cabbage interplanted here with dill because it helps to control the cabbage moth and protect them. We had some cabbages that were not planted with the dill and they just got decimated. They're not even, they're not around anymore. They're just gone. <laughs>
0: Oh, and I see you have a few chickens
1: walking around. Yeah, we have a flock. We've got two roosters. Um, I'm actually going to grab a stick because one of our roosters is really, he can be very aggressive, which is his job. But I don't need him attacking us. Oh, he's inside the pen right now. The rooster, that's very protective. But we're actually going to get some more hens. I had a neighbor where I live just come up last week and say hey, you need more chickens? I was like, "Uh, yeah, but not here, but at work. He's like, oh yeah, I've got 20. I'm like, we'll we'll take 10. So every rooster should have at least six hens. And we had some hens get taken. There's a fox that comes every morning, and we catch him on the security cameras, and he visits. And some days, he gets lucky.
0: So you have a, a, looks like a pretty secure pen for them, and then during the day they just kind of walk around?
1: They roam around. We added that pen at the end of last summer, right after two dogs just busted into the, the coop. We thought it was secure, but they just knocked the doors down and then, and got two, two more hens. So we ended up putting the, the larger pen around, which is more secure, except for there was a gap between the top section and the fence and the fox climbed up the fence and in through that narrow opening and got in the coop and one by one took out three hens so we're just like, and okay. you caught all that on security camera or you just know that's what happened and We they, they caught it because we wouldn't have been able we were like where'd they go because <laughs> he didn't leave a trace they were just gone
0: and so do you get eggs from the chickens
1: we do And either the youth take them home or we run a food pantry, emergency food pantry that we started at the beginning of COVID last year, Mondays and Fridays. And so we'll give out eggs there.
0: And so the youth are also learning about caring for chickens and about their behavior and all that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they they take care of them. And so it's caring for chickens is not that hard. And because of that, you know, you can get eggs, and it's a real sort of low-key way to get a protein source for your family. I haven't had youth really take up having chickens at home, but I've had staff members that now have chickens. So it's good. And you have chickens? I do have chickens. I, I, I love having eggs. <laughs> and then a couple years ago, we planted this native plant border here with the Marion County Soil and Water Conservation District funding, and then we worked with them to actually have different guilds. So the first guild up there is a pawpaw guild, and they helped us you know, pick up pick the plants to plant with that. This is the plum guild right here. Then there's the serviceberry guild, and then an elderberry one just past where that utility pole is. And so they helped to maintain it or just helped you no, plant it? they just it? helped us get the plants and then put them in. Mm -hmm. and then we maintained it.
0: Wow, look at all the pollinators on that. It's like everybody, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. bees, wasps, bumblebees, flies, flies, little tiny native bees, that's really cool. Those guilds that Phyllis pointed out? That refers to a permaculture term for a collection of plants that help each other grow and don't compete for all the same nutrients. The effect is a diverse and floral living fence between the garden space and the road. We approached a shaded lawn area with brightly colored Adirondack chairs arranged in a large circle. I asked Phyllis
1: about it. So the first year that we started, well, we've always wanted to connect and do connect this sort of hands-on work with the idea that it really all starts with visioning and like, what is it that you want to see? And my background's in landscape architecture and I'm an artist. And so it starts with imagining how you want to change your environment and your surroundings, make it better. Or just what do you want to, what's beautiful to you? How do you want to make that manifest? And so we work with the youth on not just the hands-on work, but then also the, the visioning and design and everything from like park spaces so that Riverside Park plan that you saw a park we worked on the park plan as a part of the outreach team but then the youth also got to give their input on what they wanted to see in the park we may if you have time go drive over to the Flanner House Community Orchard which we were part of that process in terms of designing that working with the design team on that and then now we maintain it So the space here definitely has their imprint on it. They're the ones that decided to create what they wanted to call a chill corner over here. And it started at first with just a few chairs for community members, but then with COVID last year, it became our outdoor meeting space. And so every morning, you know, we have our morning meeting and and this is where it happens now. And sometimes we end the day with a closing circle. (laughs) It's definitely become one of the spaces that helps. I, don't, I think it like holds the garden. Like mm-hmm. or, You know, they got the trail on the one side, the big circle, the office.
0: So for our listeners, can you describe what the space looks like?
1: Yeah, so you see a large circle with chairs, outdoor chairs, that some of them that were constructed by the youth, others by volunteers, but they've all been painted in different colors. And it's just kind of like they pick up the colors from the garden flowers (laughs) and so there's a chair that's blue and orange, there's one that's uh, turquoise and fuchsia and there's a couple benches um, and some logs and that just becomes a really nice sitting space and so we start with the morning circle, we do a check-in because it's important to know how youth are doing when they come in. We ask them either, you know, tell us how you do on a scale of 1 to 10 some circles we have a, a mood meter sheet of paper and it's like take two words and what's your word of the day blend it together and then we have a check-in question and it could be if you were an animal what would you be or what's the best piece of advice anyone ever gave you something like that just to kind of connect and and learn more about them and then we all stand up and we do a stretch circle cuz the work is very physical as you can see mm-hmm. <laughs> and They're young and they're not necessarily used to thinking like, oh, I've got to really like get my body ready to do this work. But each person gets a chance to lead in a stretch. And it's a very kind of low-key way of having each person take the lead on something, just even for a minute, and just have all eyes on you. And then you just lead a stretch. You don't even say anything. So we try to have opportunities where we build on those small experiences and give folks chances to, to be leaders and... Guide their peers and things, and just you know, we so we have right now 42 youth in the green team program this summer, and they're broken up into three teams. Two of those youth in each team are the co leads, co captains. I try to do male and female, and they're green teamers that have been here for at least two years. About half of our current green teamers are, are repeats from previous years, um, and so we have usually way more applicants than we have spaces for. We were able to manage have this is our biggest summer yet okay. since twenty sixteen. Yeah.
0: And so it's a it's a work program so they're it's it's basically a job. They're mm-hmm. getting paid mm-hmm. and they're learning skills. Yeah.
1: So for most of the youth that are new, this is their first job ever. And so they're getting acquainted with the practice of getting places on time letting us know if and when they're going to be late, calling ahead. We have conversations about what does it mean to be a part of a team, how important it is to have a good attitude, even when, like, the work is hard. And that's, you know, some days we're out here, it's sweltering. And how do you work through that even when it's tough? And if you talk to each team, they're going to tell you they've got the best team. (laughs) And it's great. And, um... They work well together. They get along. They build bonds, and and part of part of the skills that they're building are ones that are more about just as a human being, how do you get along in the world, and and what does it mean to to build build a sense of belonging, to build internal resilience. And so it's it's the life skills that we're working on, as well as the job skills, and in some ways the life skills are the most important part of what we do. Right. So.
0: Many of the people who are participating may not pursue careers or jobs in agriculture or in uh, you Natural know landscaping resources. or yeah,
1: they may not. I mean, for me, it's great if they want to. Uh, the most important thing is they start to really figure out what it is that interests them and to know that they have a space here to kind of start to explore stuff and talk to us about things and and figure that out. yeah.
0: So it's building other kind of skills, besides just learning how to grow stuff.
1: Absolutely. But the growing stuff is a great, the growing stuff for the community, the taking care of community spaces, is a great way to build community connections. It's also a great way for them to understand the level of agency that they have in the world. You know, even with these small things that we do that are really actually quite immense and beautiful.
0: Could you tell me a little bit about how you got involved with this or just what inspired you to move in this direction?
1: I was working for a small landscape architecture and planning firm for about eight years. And we had tried to do projects with youth, involve them in the planning phases of things, but it was really hard to get the project schedule meshed up with the school schedule. And sometimes we'd be able to have some interactions that were meaningful but not real deep and so you'd,
4: you you would know and to go through a whole process the whole
1: thing, like this yeah. the timing was was never quite right and then so I knew I wanted to figure out how to work with youth more in that way and then my former boss and the owner of the company was wanting to scale down and eventually plan for retirement and had thought to have myself and another co-worker take over the business and buy it from her and we went down that road for about six months and then I realized I was going to be going around the state doing marketing and like you know drumming up the business and that's not really the work I wanted to do I wanted to stay working with community more closely and in this community in particular in Indianapolis which is where I'm from so I decided that was not the route I wanted to go and decided to leave the company I didn't really know what I was going to do just that I wanted to figure out how I was going to work with youth and then this job came up and it was a good fit
0: well it seems like it's uh, maybe helpful to have that national organization that's already kind of set up a structure so you're not starting just from nothing
1: yeah the the great thing about that oh look there's a great blue heron
0: A gray bird with a long beak and a giant wingspan glided over the garden as we spoke. Wow, I guess being so close to the canal here, you get some of those water birds.
1: Yeah. So yeah, so Groundwork USA, the way you get a trust in your city or town, you actually apply to Groundwork USA to do it. And then you have to put together a whole collective of folks to serve as the steering committee to go through this feasibility process to do that. And the steering committee is residents, it's other nonprofits in the area, city government, municipal folks, and then other partners that are stakeholders that are are relevant. And obviously at the end of that feasibility process, it was decided that Indianapolis could handle another nonprofit and that the work that was needed to be done was enough to necessitate a groundwork need starting here.
0: And that had already happened before you came on.
1: Right. I came on when that was done, when the first board had already formed, and then they issued a job announcement for the executive director. So you're the first
0: executive director for the program. I
1: am. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's kind of neat. So you're, you're joining something that already has some structure, but you also get to,
1: get to be it. the visionary too. Yeah. yeah. And so we knew... We wanted to have a youth program, and so we started that off right away. I started in August of 2015. We had our first youth program in October. This was maybe the beginnings of our forest ecological approach to the gardening here, this tree that died and was cut down last year and then Ian started excavating around the roots and then started planting just sort of this wildness, beautiful wildness and you know we've talked to the youth about this whole idea of the hidden life of trees you know what's going on under the soil and like how important this thing is that you don't even really see and take for granted just how alive it is and you can't have a good garden without good soil. It's a good metaphor for them too there's that saying right like if you have a plant that's not growing, the issue isn't with the plant, it's with the environment. And so I think that applies to these kids as well.
0: Phyllis tells me that they work with a local arborist who brings them large trunks and branches to incorporate into their garden work.
1: They're great for these mounds that we're doing here. culture mm-hmm. It's a German word. I'm sure other cultures have done this as well, but you, you dig out a shallow pit you put in all these branches and you put the soil back on that you dug out. And then as the wood breaks down, it creates that richer uh, soil environment for the mycorrhizal fungi and other things to live. It holds moisture better, plants grow, and they're happier. So this is the second round of culture mounds that we've done. The first round are the front ones along the way there. And we had just native plants in those. And you see how those have settled in Mm -hmm. a lot more. Um, But they start this tall. And then this year, with all of the extra lumber that we have or wood, we're able to, like, make them a little more substantial. What we like to do, and Ian's really great about this, is we have a lot of seeds inside. And when there's a spot that's ready for something new to go in, he just says go go pick something that you guys want to grow and they'll go get a seed pack spread the seeds and so it's very hands-on and like we're not try it yeah try it out I mean that's what it is it's like it's an experiment and if it doesn't work uh, guess what you can plant something else there later
0: yeah I think that's an important part of working with youth from my own experience is that you can't have somebody who's too controlling yeah because if you want a perfect garden, you're going to
1: not have <laughs> the right experience for everyone involved, right, you know? Right. And that's, yeah, we're not shooting for perfection. We're shooting for richness of experience. I'm speaking with Phyllis Boyd at
0: Groundwork Indy. She was just talking about Google culture. hukulculture. culture mimics the forest floor environment to create rich soil for garden beds. In just a moment, we have a story from Harvest Public Media about farmers using the actual forest floor in agriculture. Later in the show, Phyllis Boyd takes me on a driving tour of some pocket gardens and art installations throughout the Northwest neighborhood, and a community orchard created through a partnership with Flanner House. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. The role of trees in agriculture tends to be viewed as limited to the lumber industry or highly organized orchards to grow fruit. But Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports some farmers are looking to the forest floor to get more people into agriculture, at least part-time.
3: Dennis Lindbergh's five acres in southern Missouri don't look like a farm. After making our way past a fence and through a thicket of sticker bushes, we're in a heavily forested area on sloping ground. All around the forest floor are smatterings of small green plants. They're intentional. Those are the crops. Now There's some ginseng here that I planted and I'm taking the seed from it and just planting it right down in here so it'll spread. But you got to get the seed in the ground. Lindbergh grows ginseng, golden seal, and other plants that prosper in the shade. They're used in cooking, medicines, and supplements. He's one of a growing number of people who are doing very small-scale farming in forested areas to serve niche markets. Lindbergh says it's possible to make a decent living this way. You grow a hundred pounds of ginseng root out in the woods at five, six hundred a pound, well, that's pretty good money. It's not quite that easy, though, because ginseng needs seven years to grow before harvest, and it's worth more if you wait longer. Lindbergh has been forest farming for almost 40 years, and much of that time he's had another job raising hogs. Forest farming advocates say it's an underutilized form of agriculture. Hannah Hemmelgarn is with the University of Missouri Center for Agroforestry. She says the key is to find the right crops to plant in the right kind of forest.
0: And and I think there are ways that that people who are doing this are getting really creative and creating markets and uh, creating interest in these value-added products especially.
3: Forest farmers are also finding markets for products, including black walnuts, witch hazel, and ramps. The Helmuth family owns Ozark Forest Mushrooms in Missouri. They grow a special variety of shiitake mushrooms on white oak logs. Instead of building shade shelters, they grow them under a stand of yellow pine trees on their land about 150 miles southwest of St. Louis. Stacks of logs under special blankets are covered with mushrooms waiting to be picked. Henry Helmuth says these mushrooms are analogous to heirloom tomatoes. These have uh, a stronger flavor, or more unique, um, and it's also just a different variety. So
1: you'll see the ones in the store look slightly different. Um, they have got just a subtly different flavor
3: Henry Helmuth is the son of the founders of the farm. They harvest between 100 and 500 pounds of mushrooms a week all year round and drive them to St. Louis, where they're sold for $10 a pound wholesale to restaurants and specialty grocery stores and a couple bucks more at farmers markets. He says this farm is profitable in part because they also have a B and that is booked months in advance and includes a mushroom tour with the stay. Not to be too pessimistic, but there's many easier ways to make a living. At just any small scale farming operation, you're going to realize it's not uh, a prof- that
1: profitable an endeavor. It's a hard endeavor, seven days a week, always working. Um, but also, a lot of people love that lifestyle, you know, feeling connected to your work directly.
3: And that draw to farm and work with the land may get more people into forest farming, partially because the cost to get into the business is much lower than conventional farming. Hemelgarn says a few acres and some basic supplies costs far less than hundreds of acres and the high-tech machinery needed to grow row crops like corn or wheat.
0: Keeping trees in the ground, planting trees, and thinking about ways to integrate our livelihoods with tree landscapes and making a livelihood or a part of your livelihood from those spaces, um, I, I hope is going to be more part of the agricultural landscape moving forward.
3: She says another part of the allure to forest farming is the desire to mitigate climate change. More trees means less carbon in the atmosphere. The U.S. Department of Agriculture identifies forest farming as a good alternative to supplement income for farmers and other landowners, but stops short of calling it a full-time occupation. Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media.
0: Harvest Public Media covers food and farming in the heartland. Learn more at harvestpublicmedia.org. Earlier in the show, we spoke with Phyllis Boyd of Groundwork Indy. We toured their on-site garden, where teams of young people tend to the plants and chickens as part of a youth development program. I wanted to hear about the other work that the green teams, ground core groups, and Groundwork staff engage in throughout
1: the community. Right now, we have a project called the Community-Led Environmental Action Project. And at the moment, that's mostly staff supported but we're partnering with others in the community to do this where we are uh, seeking community input on what are the issues and concerns that people have about the environment everything from lead in soils to what's going on in your house what's your water quality what's the air quality outdoors indoors and sort of just where do we go from here there's a lot going on there's brownfield property that may or may not have contamination there are a lot of vacant properties. So the in this area, about uh, a third of the properties are vacant. A third are renter occupied. A third are owner occupied, and so that's a lot of vacant properties. And with with vacant properties come a lot of issues, including like criminal activity. And then one of the worst ones is just chronic dumping. But it's not the residents that are doing it. It's it's folks either working for landlords that have evicted people and they're just dumping like furniture or it's construction companies dumping construction waste because they don't want to go pay for it you know at the at the landfill so they'll come find a vacant lot that doesn't have a lot of eyes on it and then they'll dump on there yeah,
0: yeah and so then you're getting all kinds of contaminants just from that
1: yeah yeah and it's ongoing it's an ongoing issue so one of the things we do besides the gardening in this space is we've activated some vacant properties on, on the street up here, Raider Street. Before, one of the sort of connecting projects for us is that before, when I was working at the other firm, I worked with the community on a Safe Routes to School plan mm-hmm. and then worked with the youth at the two elementary schools nearby, asked them, one, to map their routes to and from school, how they walked or biked, and then also asked them What is it that you like about your walking and biking to school? What do you not like about it? And the things that kind of rose to the top in terms of what really was troubling to them were they were getting chased by dogs, they were not liking the scary kind of abandoned properties that they had to walk by, there were adults that would harass them, and just some other things that were, you know, that no no kid should have to deal with on their way to school, right? Mm -hmm and other issues in terms of when we did a sidewalk assessment or a pedestrian assessment with them and had them go out in teams we had three different grades participating and so one of the grades would take notes one was taking photos one grade was like the the lookout to make sure that they were they were safe as they crossed the street wow. and they were just going around around the schools and just marking what sidewalks were in good shape what ramps also taking note of like how many abandoned properties were around the school so just in one school alone there were like 70 in 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 the three block radius around the school there were like 70 abandoned properties wow. and so we can take a drive and see see that too but th- what we identified with the with the mapping of their routes was like which are the routes that are their kind of collector routes and then that helped us determine where to put the lot activation project. And that was a separate project that I worked on with another artist, Lashana Crow Storm, and we got an art Place America grant to fund that. So what is a lot activation? It can be anything from a garden to art to just putting up a fence and mowing it and making it not look like it's abandoned. But activation is really like, for me, it's like, are you inviting people in? To it and,
0: and making it cared for, caring care, for it.
1: Yeah, cared for.
0: Mm-hmm. When you're doing the, like when you're having these meetings or discussions and working with the youth, do you ever touch on issues of food justice, environmental justice, Absolutely. those kinds of things?
1: Yeah. So we. Ground the work in the context of the community. So that includes um, learning about historic and structural racism, and social racism, why the highway is where it is, why the neighborhood looks like it does. It's not just because their parents or grandparents aren't trying or haven't tried. It's you look at redlining, the history of redlining, and how that has impacted chronic disinvestment in areas and why we have these vacant properties here. We look at the issue of mass incarceration because that affects them. We look at violence in the community and how that has impacted them. So we, it's, it's super contextualized. There's no work that happens without some explanation of the multiple whys. Mm-hmm. And, and also you, the, the, the environmental side of it. Like if we're planting a tree, we talk about why a tree? What does a tree do? How do trees function? They understand we've got this garden that's got all these different plants in it they get that we're supporting pollinators that it's important to have biodiversity
0: and also how some neighborhoods have tree canopies that are mature and some don't
1: right exactly so the you know the heat island effect we've talked about climate change some of the work that we do is is super labor intensive like we go around, there's probably a crew out right now that's clearing curbs on Raider Street because one of the issues is we don't have street cleaners come along. So the curbs get built up with debris, they're growing plants, the storm drains get blocked, and the streets flood, which means people's basements are getting wet, they're getting in-home mildew. So there are all these things that are connected to, to the urban environment, the hydrological cycle, and it's. we try to make those connections because nothing is happening in a vacuum. I think it's shocking to some of them, particularly like things like lead in the soils, like they, some of them had no idea. Like, what? Like, this is an issue, and learning about Flint, places like that, environmental justice issues that we have here as well as other places in America. So the socio-political stuff that's happening, that really does impact them, and people that look like them. Most of our youth are youth of color, and they're low income. Yeah. let's take a drive okay and I'll show you other places.
0: we took the groundwork pickup truck to drive around the neighborhood looking at projects
1: this the canal is the borderline between the Northwest Civic neighborhood and the Riverside neighborhood I'm just gonna go across the canal so that you can actually see how beautiful it is It's a neighborhood in the core of Indianapolis. You can see that there's quite a few vacant properties, but then also a lot of actual neighbors that are here and living and that care about the neighborhood. This is one of the lots that we activated with a fence. This is an intersection that we freshen up every year in partnership with IU Health for Uh their IU Health Days of Service.
0: We drove through the Raider Street corridor I saw the vacant lot activation sites with raised garden beds, colorful picket fencing, and art sheds with murals painted by local artists like Michi Shakur.
1: You could characterize this as a economically struggling neighborhood, but then that's only really a part of the story. There are, you know, the residents that live here, a lot of them are very engaged have a lot of gifts and talents and It's a very rich neighborhood. It might not be economically rich, but it's rich in other ways. Go back to Raider Street. This is the Spire House. They're they're renovating this um, old fire station. A really cool building. Oh, let me back up. That house back there, the house back there across the alley from the Wellness Garden is in the Spire House house. It's a duplex and they are turning it into a potter's house where on one side, a ceramicist will have a studio um, and then do community classes, and on the other side, they'll live. Wow. So that's just right here. Inspire House is started by um, Sharon and Tim Clark, African-American couple, and it's next to the Wellness Garden and across the street from the neighborhood park. Like I said, there's a lot going on. There are a lot of people who really love this community and are working hard. So, this is the Flanner House Community Orchard. It went in a few years ago. The trees are getting mature and they're producing.
0: We arrived at a spacious green space with young fruit trees and gravel paths. The orchard is near the two-acre Flanner Farm and next to Cleo's bodega with a gorgeous new mural painted across the long side of the building. Flanner House worked with Keep Indianapolis Beautiful, or K-I-B, to start the orchard.
1: For their green space projects, they, they pick a designer to work with. They work with community teams to pick projects, and this was one of the first community orchards that they've ever done and then they worked with our youth to sort of think about the layout. What were the kinds of spaces that were needed in the community orchard? So, a, a fire pit and things like that. So we come back every weekend. It's an ongoing thing of controlling the weeds in the yeah. in the gravel because we're not trying to be you know spray herbicides and stuff here. So it's just basically hand removal, and it's it's a constant you know, yeah. process. So we just yeah. work our way around weekly. Uh, this mural was installed uh, for Juneteenth and there was a big celebration here. It's by Tasha Beckwith. It's gorgeous. And I love it. The other mural on the other side is looking towards the past and arming the past and this to me is sort of like black futurism and like looking forwards and it's one of my favorite murals in the city.
0: That might be a good place for us to end. Looking to the future. I've been speaking with Phyllis Boyd, Executive Director of Groundwork Indy. Please go to our website to learn more about the great work happening in the Northwest area of Indianapolis. That's at eartheats.org.
2: That's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us. The EarthEats team includes Ayobon Binder. Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Peyton Kenobleck, Josephine McRobbie, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Phyllis Boyd, Ian and Cal, and everyone at Groundwork Indy. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Hey.